Hey there. Have you heard of the Horizons Conference presented by Jobs for the Future? It's the premier national platform for ideas and action to drive equitable economic advancement for all. We are honored to have a narrative change partnership with American Student Assistance, ASA, to elevate high school intentional pathways, and we're excited to collaborate with JFF in an effort to change the way industry thinks about post-secondary pathways. Be sure to register for this year's Horizon Conference, which will take place June 14th and 15th in New Orleans. We need all of your voices to develop systems that work for everyone. Find out more at horizons.jff.org or at the link in the show notes. Uh, Michelle, are we more polarized and can education help? Um, I think we're definitely more polarized than we've been. Uh, The polarization that we see isn't just an American issue. Um, I currently live abroad and I can say that, you know, we're, we, we see this, um, in other countries as well. So think about Brazil, Italy, the UK, France, um, there's a lot of places that are seeing this increased polarization. Uh, we're living in a time of rapid change and it's, it's not an easy period. Um, so I do think education is an outlet, uh, to let kids, uh, discuss and think about, uh, issues, uh, the world that we live in now, and the direction they want the world to go. Um, so I do think education is is a great outlet to decrease the polarization, not that we're necessarily always going to agree on things, but so that we don't feel so disconnected from one another and we have the skills that we need to, to talk with, with each other and to address the problems that we face. I'm Tom Vanderark, and uh, you're listening to Getting Smart Podcast. Today, we're joined by Michelle Blanchett. She's the founder and director of the Educators Lab, and she's the author of a great new book called Preventing Polarization, 50 Strategies for Teaching Kids About Empathy Politics and Civic Responsibility. Thank you for joining us, Michelle. Yes, thanks for having me on. And Michelle, you're joining us from, uh, it's an evening over there, and Michelle, you're a a veteran educator, um, change leader, change consultant, and, and civics educator, where did, I guess, when, when did polarization hit your radar and why and how did you decide you needed to uh, address the issue? Um, sure. So I, uh, one of my first years of teaching, I, I taught civics in Virginia, which is, uh, I think, a, a hotbed right now for a variety of reasons. Um, and in any case, uh, when I left the classroom, um, just because I wanted to do more to make sure that uh, education was truly supporting students. And so um, I kind of started this journey as a consultant. Uh, I did a bit more with professional learning because I noticed that um, teachers really had great ideas and we could do a lot more to support them so that they could materialize materialize those ideas because they were usually the best ones, I think, for our students. Um, so in any case, that kind of took me on this journey. I got really into the social startup world. Um, I was able to see uh, those kind of spaces really explode in like Madrid, Zurich, DC. Um, and there was a lot of great stuff to learn from there. So Uh, We wrote our first book, The Startup Teacher Playbook, um, which really takes a lot of inspiration from the social startup world. And I say social because, you know, it's really more about purpose purpose than profits. Um, uh, And uh, 
yeah, so we started creating these these uh, more holistic formats where we could help teachers uh, and organizations think about change and implement their ideas. And another thing that we noticed as we did this is we really wanted to be able to bring um, topics that uh, I think impact students a lot, but get a bit neglected to the forefront. And, you know, it's not that I, I wanted to write about polarization. It's just that it's an urgent issue um, and it's impacting our students. And so, you know, I just I've had the experience in the classroom. I feel like a lot of the current uh, books and tools on civics are really traditional where they really just focus on I'll call it the body of civics, where we focus on, okay, what are the three branches of government? And we're missing kind of the soul of civics, which is why should a person care and what gives them that drive uh, to engage in civics and feel a need to, to, to get involved? Michelle, I'm uh, post-pandemic. I'm, I'm back out visiting schools every week and everywhere I go, I... Um, school and, and system leaders tell me they're dealing with polarization, that the uh, politics are, are tougher than ever. Um, so I guess a, two, a two-part question, is, is civics education part of the solution? And are you also suggesting a, a different way of uh, being a community leader, of administering a school or a system? So... Your book, it, it seems like it's really more about civics education, but is, is there also, are you you calling for a new way to lead schools and yeah, systems? I would, I would say so. So one thing that I think makes our book unique is it's not just for social studies teachers. Uh, we talk a lot about civic mindedness and what any and all teachers could do to contribute to that. And leaders need to make create the conditions for these things to happen. Um, so I think when we talk about uh, civics right now, of course, we need a civics education. But I think we need to accept right now that it's controversial. Like I was actually just writing about something today where, you know, as soon as you scratch the surface on how things function, uh, the kids have questions. So you talk about the two party system and you just start talking about elections. And then all of a sudden the kids are like, how, you know, how do you how do you run for office? And then that, that quickly devolves into, okay, how much does it cost to run for office? And then you look at, you know, the 2020 elections that there was over $14 billion spent and the kids are like, well, where did they get this money from? And then that quickly turns into a conversation about lobbies, which turns into a conversation about Citizen United. And they're, they're kind of outraged, right? And then, then you can bring up the Electoral College and a lot of them don't understand why that still exists and why we can't get rid of it. And I mean, so I think that's the thing is with civics, it's not that it, 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 it's, it's a, it can be a controversial topic, but that's okay. And I think what's really hard right now is, um, you know, I've worked with educators around the U.S. and a lot of teachers feel like it's not okay to facilitate conversations. They feel like it's not okay to talk about things. And some of that is because there might be backlash, whether it's from parents, whether it's the school board, but there's just kind of this... Um, tension, if you will, where people are like, you know what, I probably just shouldn't even engage in this because it's going to cause a problem. And I don't think that's doing a service to our student. And I do think leaders uh, really should do more to explain um, to the school community and say, you know, if we are not allowing our kids to talk about things, the classroom should be that low stakes environment 
where they learn how to communicate with one another and tolerate different perspectives and explore issues and entertain thoughts. And they don't need to agree with them. But this is this is how you practice and learn skills like communication and critical thinking. So, um, I mean, I, I think the the two this this two part question goes hand in hand, if you will, because a civics education is important, but we need to be realistic about what a civics education is, and we need to create the conditions so that teachers are trusted to facilitate those experiences. Your first two chapters um, of preventing polarization do a, a beautiful job of describing this, Michelle. Um, equipping students to with strategies to question their world. And chapter two is about uh, keep asking questions. So I love that sentiment. Um, you've, you've described that well, uh, but how can we do that without it becoming explosively political? Um, so how can teachers do this without it becoming super political? And are there ways that school administrators can create air cover so that teachers can create environments where students can ask tough questions? So how to do this without it spinning wildly out of control? I mean, I think that's the thing. So, I mean, I've, I've taught civics, I've taught sociology, I've taught history, um, and you can't, you can't control what's happening in the world. So kids usually do come in, in with questions about what is going on in the world, and they want to talk about it. They need to talk about it because they're experiencing it. Um, and so for me, a lot of, when we talk about, one thing that I find fascinating is I don't know any school that doesn't want to promote curiosity. But then, which is, which is usually involves asking questions, but then we have this tolerance piece. Are we tolerant of the questions kids are asking? Um, are we patient with them? Are we embracing these questions? And I think if we really were to reflect, we'd see there's a bit of a disconnect. And again, I think this comes down to um, accepting that sometimes teaching is messy. We don't know which questions the kids are going to ask, but that doesn't, I, I think, I think we need to once again to like express to our school communities, like we're not trying, no one's trying to, to like pose a, a certain view onto children or, you know, sometimes I'll hear words like indoctrinating. No, I don't think this, this is not what's happening. Um, but I think if we were to kind of be for me, some of this stems down to a communication problem. Do parents understand that in the classroom, current event questions are going to be asked and that we're going to facilitate those discussions? And I think one thing right now we could maybe do a better job of is communicating, you know, this is the reality of the classroom. Kids come, they ask questions, they ask current events, and we engage in it. And your kids are mature enough to handle it. We teach them how to be responsible, how to be civil, how to, to talk to one another. And then I think it might uh, like hopefully like lower the temperature or the tension that that people might feel because I feel like there's just this assumption that you know kids are being told how to think and that was never the point of school. Um, so again, I think if we could just maybe communicate a little bit better why these conversations are happening, I think maybe there wouldn't be this this um, hostility towards it. Chapter three is about humility, and it, it strikes me that as the world goes, uh, becomes more and more complex and interconnected, uh, we all as adults and especially as teachers um, 
need a, a sense of intellectual humility about what we know and what we don't know, because we're often called to answer kids by saying, I don't know, how might we? Um, so maybe part of the answer of preventing polarization is just uh, expressing a sense of intellectual humility. And as you said, avoiding proselytizing on a particular point of view, but inviting uh, inviting great uh, good dialogue around great questions. Yeah, I think so. I, I It's interesting because I do feel like ego gets in the way a lot of certain conversations. And uh, especially now, because things are so tense, um, I've noticed there's a tendency in dialogue for somebody to want to be right. And and that's not really the point of a lot of discussions. And, you know, I think I, I tend to do a lot of work with this, the sustainable development goals. And all of those are massive, wicked problems. No one is going to have a silver bullet solution. No one is going to, and I'm air quoting here, get it right. Um, all you can do is try something. And I think that's exactly what we need is a little bit of humility when we're approaching some of the problems that we discuss, because usually these are big, like systemic, heavy, complicated problems. And most none of us really have all of the answers. And that's why we need, I think, to 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 learn from one another and 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 actually engage in what could be and have a, a few more of these thoughtful conversations. So so I do think humility um, would definitely be a, a helpful helpful skill or helpful thing to practice as we're just speaking with others. Michelle, we often talk about a, a school that invites students to do work that's important to them and to their uh, community, but that, that's a school with fewer right answers and probably a school with more humility. So we, we really appreciate that. Michelle, uh, chapter seven is about promoting collective leadership. So I really love this chapter. Um, but I, I think when most people think about civics and civic education, they don't think about leadership development and about in, inviting young people um, in, into contribution. So why is that important and what's the link to civics? So I put this one in because uh, I think with civics, it's really easy to say, oh, well, you know, I'm not a leader. I'm not a politician. I can't do anything. And my vote doesn't matter. Right. I, I hear this a lot from or I have heard it a lot from students. And the thing is, is I think if we do want systems change, we each have value and we each can do our part um, through our work, through how we live. And I think we need to kind of get away from, I think I mentioned this kind of superhero sort of syndrome I feel we have where somebody needs to do something really big and like save the world and it's all on their shoulders. And, and it's not, right? We're, we're a community, we're a country. And I think that we each contribute to the to the the world that we live in and i think helping kids see that you know they each matter and they have value and their actions matter is is really key to to being a good citizen right um so how are they doing that and so i thought this was uh, a really important piece because again i think this goes back to kind of the soul of civics i, I don't think it's just enough to learn how it functions it's it's really important for you to understand the role and 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 the capacity you have to to do your part to shape the world the way you want it. The last chapter's on change making, and I think that's where I could see your Ashoka background coming through, Michelle. Um, so this is closely related, but like, why and how should we invite young people to become change makers? 
Yeah, so I, I've done some work with Ashoka. They've always inspired me because they're kind of the home of social entrepreneurship. And that's really their whole mission is to inspire, you know, every person to, to, to be a change maker. And I think, you know, for the same reason we talked about collective leadership, I don't think everyone naturally just feels like a change maker. I think a lot of people don't. Actually, I, I run a little exercise sometimes with kids and I'll have them define what a change maker is. And usually they'll say something like someone who makes a difference. And then I'll ask them if they feel like a change maker, whatever their definition is. I was like, are you doing that? Are you that? And most kids say no. Um, and so one thing that I've noticed is that I don't know if kids really feel like they have the power to do anything or to change anything. And I think instead of um, you know, I think it's really important that we help young people to um, understand how and where they can create change. And so, for instance, in education, I think a lot of times we tend to focus on giving kids problems, um, which is fine. But I think we also need to help students do a better job of under identifying a problem and doing something about it, because every young person is going to go into the work, the workplace, into life. And they're going to run across a problem, which is actually an opportunity. But if they can't identify it, they're not going to be able to, to act, right? And I think this is why, you know, I wanted to end on change making because for me, when we talk about policy, the reason it matters, like I, I, mo so many things I hear kids care about, I, equity, sustainability, public health, these are, these are systemic and policies are key to really making change. Um, and if you have policy and, or, or if you don't, um, the other thing you have is business and how you work. And I see a lot of people creating change in this way. So, I mean, even social entrepreneurship, I don't, I don't have all the, the data memorized, but um, it's been interesting to see how like this social enterprise sector has actually, you know, created a, a larger percent of the workforce now. So um, change can happen in, in many ways. And I think it's key we give young people productive outlets to understand how they can, they can fulfill their purpose, if you will. I'd, um, I'd love to have you describe um, your high school, your sort of ideal high school and what, what a civics education that culminates in change making might look like. And um, I'll give you 60 seconds to think about that. And I'll, I'll describe uh, one of my favorite schools. It's a, a rural Kansas school in Baser Linwood and the ninth graders in the Innovation Academy uh, were invited by the city council to help them name and design a new city park. And so about 50 freshmen broke into committees and got to know everyone on the city council. They now can describe city council zoning ordinances. They know all the committees of the city council. They did uh, research in the community. They studied the history of the community to develop the best name. Uh, they ran polls and focus groups to decide who would use the park and for what, um, what type of purposes. They used CAD software to design uh, the park and the signage for the park. And I've been there a couple of times and every time I go, the young people are um, so excited and articulate about the way they have engaged with their community. They know they have done work that will um, mark their community and make their community better for, uh, for the next 20 years. And 
Uh, for me, that's just a, a beautiful picture of what civics education could be, um, a vision of change-making, of difference-making. But do you, do you have a picture that comes to mind of, of what your version of high school could look like? So if it's okay, what I actually picture more of is what does professional learning or teacher training look like to get into civics? So I actually never had um, civics training, right? I was a social studies teacher. So my degrees are in anthropology and international relations, and then I got my teaching certificate. And I remember being very shocked by the practice exam, which you have to pass to be become a social studies teacher. Um, and in some states, so for New Jersey and Virginia. Um, and I remember taking it and it was just memorization. And I was kind of shocked because I was like, hmm, if this is, you know, if you want teachers to do something different, like, why is this the requirement? Um, so for me, what I would love to see is, you know, when we're, when we're going through teacher training and professional learning, I would have loved to have more on, for instance, transformational leadership. If you, if you take a course on something like that, they talk about negotiation and soft skills and emotional intelligence and how to manage conversations and everything. I, I think this would have been really helpful um, in the classroom. I also, you know, and I'm a bit biased, like I said, we do a lot with the social startup world. So I'm very into agility. I'm into human centered design. I would have loved to know these, um, like a process like this before. So that way, when I had a certain group of students, I could have designed something that was going to cater to those kids to that community, so that I could really create learning experiences that were really impactful and help them to create to, to be engaged. Um, I also wish I would have had like, maybe a course on creating community partnerships. Um, I think it's amazing how often I hear about museums or, you know, local organizations doing this really awesome stuff, but you have to put in the effort, right? Like it, it takes a lot of work sometimes to create these opportunities so you can get the kids out of the classroom and experiencing something else. Um, I also think too, you know, I remember there was a lot on like primary, primary source documents and, a little bit here or there, but I, I, there was some nice, um, I do have to say, and I hope all teachers have this of, I liked getting courses on different types of pedagogy. So PBL, I liked, um, I liked the classes that exposed me to like how to run like decent debates or how to do a simulation. Like I liked having this kind of toolkit of different ways to provide kids experiences so that they were, um, you know, doing it instead of me talking, I, I feel like kids learn better when they experience things. So, you know, I want them to do something to take, you know, to take action. So I felt like any kind of um, advice I got on how to facilitate an experience, I, I was, I was, I gravitated towards those. And so, and then I think the other thing I have to say is I got really lucky with my student teacher. Um, I he gave me books like you know, lies my teacher told me, or he had this one lesson where he got five different textbooks and had the students examine the exact same part of history and talk about how, and it was John, John Brown and Harper's Ferry. And they each looked at it. And for most of the textbooks, you would have thought John Brown was this crazy man. And then he brought in some primary source documents with letters. And then you really get into the story of John Brown. And the, you know, it's, you, the, the kids are like, well, why did the textbooks tell it that way? You know, and then we have this wonderful conversation. And, you know, in hindsight, I realized how lucky I was to have uh, a student teacher like that. Um, but I, I hope all civics teachers have a, you know, a, a, an experience where they're learning how to facilitate conversations, how to 
um, create like really insightful provocations for students that create hands-on learning experiences, et cetera. So um, yeah, I mean, that's what I would picture as a way to like, just kind of make sure that's happening in teacher training, because then I don't think you need to worry about what's happening in the classrooms. Well, I, I love your answer to the, what would a great school look like starts with teachers, right? Of how to equip and empower teachers, how to uh, support them in, in partnership development. In that vein, you had a you had another pandemic book uh, called the Startup Teacher Playbook that came out. Um, was it two years ago now? Year and a half ago. Um, and in that book, it it looks like you drew from, as you said, a lot of the startup culture of agile uh, mindset. Um, Give us an overview of that book. Who's it for, and and uh, how how can it equip teachers for today? Sure. So uh, my co-author and I, um, we were both teachers and felt the same thing in professional learning. We're like, why are people telling us stuff? <laughs> We'd rather someone work with us so we can design things for our kids. So in that sense, um, one thing that really inspired me in the startup world was this uh, business model canvas because what I noticed is that. It asked people the guiding questions that they needed to see if an idea had value. Um, and so it was really cool because no matter where you went, if there was this kind of business model canvas workshop, people with zero business background would come in, they would discuss a problem that they they noticed and they they were they wanted they had an idea. They they wanted to turn that problem into a possibility, if you will. And so they wanted to just sit there and see if the idea had value and, and try to put it together. And A, this was great because if anyone's ever written a, um, a business plan, it's torture. Uh, it's just, it's right, like writing a research report. It's, it, it, if you change your mind, you know, you need to go back and readjust your paragraphs. This was like a sticky note document where you could really quickly and easily think holistically about your idea and the different pieces you needed to put it together. Um, without like wasting a ton of time. And so I was like, man, I wish we had this for the education sector because usually teachers have a great idea. They've already, cause you go like you, this is what ought to be done in my school. So you, I, you hear them with their great ideas and you're like, what if you gave them that same professional learning space to just try what will work for their students? And you need something that's fast because as any teacher knows, what works for period one might not work for period five. What works for a, a class one year might not work for a class the, the next year. And so I think teachers really just need that space, time, and support to, to just figure out what is or is not working in the classroom. Um, and that's exactly why we created this tool. You don't need consultants to ask the guiding questions there. And that way teachers can collaborate. They can work together. They can work by themselves um, to, to address a pain point and, and to do something, to try something out. Michelle, we appreciate your advocacy for uh, for active civics, for collective leadership, for change-making. Um, we, we love your vision for empowering and equipping teachers to make that happen for kids. Thanks for staying up late and joining us from, uh, from Switzerland. And thanks to Mason Pasha, our producer, and for the whole Getting Smart team for making this possible. Until next week, keep learning, keep leading, and keep innovating for equity. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. 
In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at GettingSmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.